0: Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands. Based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa. Set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama.
1: Free Radio Hour.
0: On the podcast, a white process processed god leaves a ring around the tub of life, the universe, and everything. Nazis in the Alps and zombies in the Target Kitchen appliance section. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's under the Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour Podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part one of a roundtable discussion with David Weber, Eric Flint, Les Johnson, and Rob Hampson. It's all about religion, science, and science fiction. This is a fascinating free-for-all among writers and scientists. Three are believers, and one is an atheist. All are really engaged and respectful and brilliant on the subjects, so really check this out. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now, the news. Oh, wow. September is a-headin' up, or playin' it cool, or reversing thermodynamics and entropy entirely, with an incredible big bang of awesomeness soon to be at booksellers everywhere. Talking about Germanica by Robert Conroy, it's out. This is an alternate history where the Nazis attempt to establish an impregnable stronghold in the Alps as their war effort collapses, and they make a last-ditch effort to develop the ultimate weapon to save their hateful cause. Some fun heroics by American servicemen and European damsels make that test not so easy for the evil ones. This is the late Robert Conroy's final alternate history, although we have a Conroy thriller coming up in November, Stormfront, and we just might be coming up with a special surprise having to do with the incomplete Conroy manuscript. That might be out in 2016 or 2017. Stay tuned on that. But this really is one of Bob's best ever, so give it a read. Germanica by Robert Conroy is in hardcover and ebook format at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a roundtable discussion with David Weber, Eric Flint, Les Johnson, and Rob Hampson on religion, science, and science fiction. We'll have part two on the podcast next time. Religion, belief in a moral and or spiritual universe beyond the physical universe, sometimes including revelation of truth by God or other beings beyond space and time. Science, the empirical study of the physical universe and formulation of provisional laws and theories that govern its behavior. Are these two systems of thought compatible? Does the scientific method override religion or simply make it irrelevant? Can there be any truth other than scientific truth? On the other hand, does scientific hubris belittle humanity's moral nature while offering no solution to ethical dilemmas and no justification to combat evil behavior? The relationship between science and religion has been much considered, debated, and mulled over since Enlightenment times. Near its beginning, science did not much butt against morality, but as the centuries progressed, science and ethics began more and more to collide and until the twentieth century which was basically defined by this collision. Here in the early 21st century, we're seeing a continuation in some quarters as various scientists and science popularizers take on religion as a relic of the past of magical thinking. Religion and morality are explained, not believed in. In this mix comes the blooming of the new literary genre of the 20th century science fiction. Can storytelling based on plausible scientific advance bridged the gap between science and religion or... Science and Morality. To discuss these and other questions on science, religion, and science fiction, we have with us David Weber, Eric Flint, Les Johnson, and Rob Hampson. Hello, guys.
1: Uh, hi. Hi, Tony. Hey.
0: David Weber is the creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Honor Harrington series and many other books. Eric Flint is the creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire alternate history series. Les Johnson is a space scientist who works at NASA whose work has involved developing plans for interstellar exploration and the use of solar sails for space travel within our solar system. And Les is not reflecting NASA's point of view, but Les's, I'm sure he'll say. Les is the prime architect and organizer of the groundbreaking scientific conclave, which I've been to and it's great, the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop. He's the author of Rescue Mode with Ben Bovin, Back to the Moon with Travis Taylor, and co-editor of this excellent science science fiction collection called Going Interstellar that Bain has put out. And finally, Rob Hampson is a professor of physiology and pharmacology at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Rob is a neuroscientist doing groundbreaking research in the interaction of brains and electronics. I thought I'd start by letting each of you more or less characterize your own beliefs and how you arrive at them. Um, let's start with Rob. What do you believe, Rob.
2: Well, I came from a a traditional family background, go to church on Sunday, go to Sunday school, and all of that. But what actually happened was when I was about 16, I had a personal experience which really cemented a feeling of faith. And so I I had, in fact, considered going into seminary at one point, but studying science uh, actually had taken root at a much earlier age. And so I went into science, uh, but. Along the way, I, you know, took a look at my background growing up in church and made my own decisions as to what I wanted to do. I did not end up in my parents' denomination. I chose one based on the experience in the community, and essentially, I find religion to be a comfort, I find it to be a uh, community, and... I am quite often asked if there's a conflict between science and religion, and I say, there does not have
1: to be.
0: Eric, same question. I think that you might have a different answer, however.
1: Well, yeah, I do. Um, Depending on how you parse the question, I'm either an atheist or an agnostic. Um, If you parse it in really general, very general terms, do I think there's such a thing as a prime creator or whatever. You know, I just, on that I'm agnostic, because who knows. But uh, if you narrow it down more to, you know, do I believe in the very personal God of the Judeo-Christian religions? the answer is no, I don't. Um, At the same time, I I find myself annoyed, at the very least, by the positions taken publicly by the people who are often called the new atheists, people like... uh, Sam Harris and uh, uh, Richard Dawkins and, uh, before we die, Christopher Hitchens, uh, because two reasons. One is that they typically are always taking cheap shots. Uh, what they are really criticizing publicly is a branch of religion, and they focus on Christianity. But it also would spill over into Judaism and, and Islam. That you can characterize as a literalist. That is, those people who argue that the Bible, or the Quran or whatever, the Tanakh, is literally true in every word. And, and But the problem is, that most people who, who are Christian, or Muslim, or Jewish, do not believe that. The Catholic Church, for instance, doesn't agree with that. And it's by far the largest denomination in Christianity. Um, so, they're just simply sliding around the fact that it's not what most religious people believe. And secondly, and what I think is more importantly, they're either ignoring or just oblivious to the actual role religion has played all through human history, which is complex. Um, And one point which I have made to a couple of atheists friends of mine who are of that persuasion, is that they are basically criticizing religion from a moral and ethical framework, which, however, they mostly got from the religious tradition of the human race. Where you were going with that one, Eric? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a similar phenomenon you get nowadays with a lot of people who are really harshly critical of Andrew Jackson. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of things to be critical about with Jackson, but what they don't quite seem to grasp is that they are framing their criticisms within a context that was largely created by the Jacksonian movement. So, yes, you know, history is complicated, it really is. Um, And everyone knows the famous quote by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels that religion is the opening of the masses, which is in the Communist Manifesto. But they wrote an awful lot about religion uh, that was very complex and had a lot more to say about it. I actually did summarize what I think in one passage in my first novel, Mother of Demons. which is that the great universal religions play an immensely important and, for the most part, a very positive role in shaping the evolution of the human race. Because what religions ultimately are, in my opinion, is not cosmologies; they're basically ethical structures and ways people have of shaping their own moral framework. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Mother, we have, by the way, uh, Eric goes into this um, for for quite a bit in uh, in our interview with him about Mother of Demons it's a very he's created a religion um, within there that's it's kind of Buddhist I guess you'd call it Eric uh,
1: it's actually yeah sort of well not really it's uh it's actually based on an interesting idea what if you had a religion that was based on dialectical logic instead of formal logic um and but, but, one of the things, as, as someone who considers himself a Marxist, I always get amused by is and people tell me that my sister would only work because I believe in the perfectibility of the human species, and the concept of perfectibility is impossible within dialectical logic. So anyway, never mind. Um, <laughs> what I also find amusing is that I am, despite being an atheist, uh, I'm not sure there's any author in science fiction, or at least there aren't very many who spend as much time as I do depicting religion and religious figures in my novels, mm-hmm. uh, which I always find kind of amusing.
0: Seth?
3: Well, I mean, I, as you said in the introduction, I am a scientist, and I look at the sciences to understand basically how the world works. But I am a Christian, and I look at the Bible for understanding that questions that I think science leaves pretty much unanswered. You know, who am I? why am I here? Is there a purpose in my life? And a big one that is directly related to my science training, which is actually one of the most profound questions in science and and astronomy, which is why is there something rather than nothing? And you could probably spend hours just talking about that one. But it it also, religion and my Christian religion kind of gives me ethical guidance in life and addresses questions of morality, how we should, should live as humans, and I take great comfort in that and exploring that with my, my fellow Christians. You know, and as, as background, how did I arrive at this point? Well, like Rob, um, I was born into a Christian family in middle America, and, you know, there's no doubt that it had, had a huge impact on my personal beliefs and my worldview. I mean, we're all shaped in large part by our, our culture. And as I grew up, I discovered that I had an aptitude and interest in math and science, and what's kind of humorous to me in, in retrospect is because of that, and only because of that, I went through what I call my atheist phase, and, and that was late high school and early college. And I thought that I had to be an atheist because I was going to become a scientist, and all scientists had to be atheists. And therefore, I kind of set my religion on a shelf for a couple of years, but, but that didn't really last long. Uh, when I was in college, there was no great moment, no pivotal moment or epiphany, but I, I did regain my faith and realize that um, there is more to life than the here and now, and more than just the questions that, that science is able to answer. So I went off and read every book I could find about science and religion. I've got a whole shelf of, of books on that where uh, different viewpoints of, of how, to, how to reconcile this, this great debate, uh, Tony, that you laid out has kind of shaped the 20th century. And the conclusion I've reached is, is similar to Rob's, is I think they address different questions. There doesn't have to be a conflict. And once I came to that, I guess you'd call that an epiphany, I've really grown in my faith, and and, uh, it's helped me me a lot.
0: Cool. Uh, Well, David, I have heard you talk sort of around um, a lot of your beliefs at conventions, and I'm pretty sure that that there's a big background behind that. Can you give us some of that?
4: Well, um, I was raised in the Episcopal Church, and in my early 20s, I got really pissed off with the Episcopal Church, because it seemed to me that they had decided that they needed to be on the right of every social, the right side of every social issue, rather than spending very much time with the Operator's Manual for the religion. Um, and so I decided I would show God, and I walked away from the Church, and I was gone for about five, six years. Um, I am now a Methodist. Uh, my grandparents were Methodists, so it was an easy transition for me. Um, I find it a little amusing that I got upset because they were so imbued with political correctness that they were ignoring religion. I went and joined a religion, which started as a social revival movement. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know,
1: that's kind of like... Yeah, I was you know, say
4: God, yeah, God, God was not really impressed by my... You know, he was kind of like, I'll be here when you... Um, I think that, uh, for me, the moment that... I'm a methodist place... Um, Well, actually, technically we're lay servants now, because uh, a lot of lay speakers were like, oh, no, that means I have to get up in the pulpit and I can't do that. So I'm still in the lay speaker track. Mostly it's lay servants now. Um, I had uh, a moment about uh, 15 years ago, um, having a uh, uh, revival uh, at one of the local churches. And um, I went down to the communion rail. And a friend of mine, uh, Wes Smith, Smith was uh, helping with the service, and he was standing behind me with his hands on my shoulders while I was at the rail. And I felt a third hand uh, on my back, the small of my back. I had never had an experience like that before in my life. Um, and I'm pretty sure, because, you know, it was a Wednesday night, and I'd gotten plenty of sleep the night before, you know, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a hallucination. Um, I think the only reason there has to be a conflict between religion and and science is if someone is going to insist that God couldn't create a universe that worked on natural, recognizable laws um that or you get into I'm a literalist and by God God created the earth in this order, you know step one, step two step three uh, a few years ago uh my kids asked me if God had created the dinosaurs <laughs> I'm like, I mean you know you gotta understand you know the the, the Genesis was written by people trying to explain a process to the best of their understanding of the principles behind it. And we have a more of an in-depth knowledge. I said, you know, if you want to go with uh, the current Big Bang theory, and I can't think of anything much better than let there be light, and boom, I mean, you know. um, And you, I asked them, I said, you know, how long is a billion years to God? And they said, oh, a long time. And I said, no, 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 no. If you're eternal, a billion years is like, I don't know, a day? And are like, oh. So I, you know, the, the primary conflict, I think, is caused by people on both sides who are straining at maths, rather than looking at the big picture of what God and the Bible have to say to us on one hand, and what science has to say to us on the other. And to me, religion is less ethics than it is morality. And there is a subtle difference between the two. Um, I I kind of go with Christ and the Great Commandment. Uh, uh, first, you believe in God uh, with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and secondly, you love your neighbor as yourself. If you vibe those two principles of morality, the ethics define themselves uh, from that point on, I think. Yeah.
0: Well each of you uh well three of you are science fiction writers and uh i think rob's probably working on a book and he's written a a bunch of uh great science articles for us for the website so you're writers and professionally you know we talked about metaphysics here but like professionally how does how did your belief um come into your work
4: Religion has flown in under the radar in almost everything I've written to one extent or another. I, I, I my my most overtly religious works are for that other publisher that begins with a T, um, in the Safehold series. But uh, if you look at. Um, the Graysons and the Honoring Harrington series, uh, if you go all the way back to Crusade and look at the Theban religion and, and uh it's other. Eric said something earlier about the contributions religion has made to the evolution of human societies. And it's very, very, very true. Um I'm a historian by training too, like he is, unlike these science guys who are also part of the conversation. <laughs> and you can't be a serious student of history, without being aware of both the huge positive contributions and the negative contributions that religion has made to the evolution of the society that we live in today. So I'm pretty much of the opinion that we're going to go right on seeing that happen for
2: a long, long time to come. What about uh, one of
0: the...
2: I was going to say, I was going to jump in with one of the ways that religion has a place in a professional scientist's life, is we have codes of ethics. Um, My research takes me from uh, chemistry and working with single cells to working with animals to working with human patients. If I didn't have a code of ethics, number one, my institution would not allow me to do this work. Number two, it would be a it would be a serious issue. And as David has said, look at history and look at the places where ethics and science have not gone hand in hand. But one of the things that we have to do there's the you know the the, the famous medical principle: first, do no harm. And yet there is always this issue of weighing, of balancing what you do with what the ultimate outcome is. You want to do no harm. You want to have a beneficial outcome. And it's something that every individual who does science needs to judge and use to guide themselves. Uh, also, given the fact that, you know, scientists, they deal with hard facts, but Science as a whole doesn't prove things. It just illustrates whether or not something can be disproven. So in a sense, when you look at the scientific method, when you look at the applications of science, they have to be guided by principles. And the principles are embodied in the individuals that do the work.
0: Les? Yeah.
3: You know, in in, in my day job, it's all about exploring space, and these are big team efforts and big team activities, and we're building on what's gone before. And so to prep for today, I, I had read this, but I wanted to get the quote correct, and And this is kind of, in my opinion, what sums it up for my one of my big motivations in my day job, and, not in, this, and in my writing, but in my day job, comes from Isaac Newton, who wrote in the introduction to Principia, quote, The most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. And, you know, the early scientists, this notion of atheism versus faith was was foreign to a lot of these early scientists. They studied science and tried to understand it from, from trying to understand how God put it all together. And uh, that's part of what personally motivates me. And as a Christian, when I'm out, for instance, like we were recently looking at the sky for the Perseid meteor shower, which was just awesome this year. In my mind, I kept thinking of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's a, it's a spiritual moment for me to look at the stars in the sky. And as I do my job where I'm looking at advanced propulsion to go out and explore all this, I mean, my faith comes into my job and my personal motivation because I want to go see what's been created and what's out there. And yeah, that sounds kind of wispy, <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, the scientific curiosity is there, but also the just the, the awe of it all is there, and I attribute that to the, to the Creator. I, rem- I remember something that um, T.S.
4: Lewis said, he was talking about all the miracles that are related in the Bible, and he says, you know, most of them, if you are the guy who set the the laws of nature in motion, they don't require an actual violation of the laws of nature. They require a manipulation of the laws of nature. Uh, And Lewis's point was that God chose to play by the rules for whatever reason. Um, One of the things that I've always liked about Eric and his approach to religion when he uses it is that he plays fair with both sides. On the religious question, I think uh, Eric, that the character I see that most clearly in is probably Belisarius, where you you deal with his his belief and how it is impacted by Aid, uh, with all of the the revelations that
3: Aid uh, imbues him with.
0: Well, Eric, if um, if you're just trying to you tried to write something about history sure you have to take into account uh religion but if you're you know you're writing a novel um and and you do have a certain viewpoint that comes across when you're a novelist um why do you uh, why be sympathetic to both sides like david said why not just portray people that believe in a personal god or whatever as as misguided fools
1: I'm not going to be dishonest um um uh, i mean <laughs> some are um yes let me talking about televangelists but um oh the, um, the, the,
0: well, the broader point is 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 why well
1: john oliver just did a segment or show last uh, sunday night about just how many of them are just absolutely ruthless evil there's no other word for it they're just trying to scam people out of money is all it is but uh to go back to your question um I think one reason that I'm never uncomfortable dealing with, uh, issues of religion and characters who are religious is because, because of my own personal history, I don't have any problem at all understanding people whose lives are shaped and guided and to a large degree determined by strong, call it ideological beliefs, because I'm one of them. And in my case, they're secular. Um, but, um, you know, the, the life I led as a political actress for 25, 30 years was one where what I did was not determined by practical. I mean, there were any number of times I quit good-paying jobs that take low-paying jobs for reasons having to do with whatever I was trying to accomplish politically, which is the kind of thing that very religious people also often do. So I don't have any problems understanding the emotional structure involved, I guess you call it. Um, And what I try to do, and it's true with any kind of character, is look at the character from the inside out. Um, Mm -hmm. It's the reason there really aren't very many outright villains in my books. There are some. The Belisari series has a guy who's just a flaming sadist, period. I mean, there's nothing good to be said about him, but that's actually pretty unusual. Um, I'm much more likely to have villains, so to speak, like the kind you run across in the 1632 series. Um, people where you're making the effort to see how the world looks like from their point of view, and they may wind up doing some very uh, evil, nasty things, but what you're trying to do is see what's driving them to do it, uh, rather than just simply labeling people one way or the other. Um, I've always been interested in religion. Um uh, i'm I'm not religious myself and I never have been my my family my father my father's side was himself a unitarian minister except he wasn't actually a unitarian he was a universalist and I discovered the difference when I got married to my first wife and my very old grandfather presided over the ceremony and uh, <laughs> I was I did not get the very namby Cambi vague Unitarian sermon I expected. I got an old Calvinist. Never mind. The Norwegian Universalists arrived at the same conclusions the Unitarians did, but they came to it from a very, very different theological world as I discovered that day. But um I've always been interested in it. So um and I read a, i l I've read a lot about religion. So I don't know, it's just um you know, something that's always feature figured quite prominently in a lot of my books, not all of course, but um Well
4: Eric, I think it, I think it's largely because you talk about uh, seeing the character from the inside out. Another way to put that is playing fair with the characters. Yeah, that's you true. don't that's you true. don't you don't write you don't write you don't write caricatures. Uh, no, I don't. and most most of the people either pro or anti religion who are who are driving their point hard tend to resort to straw men a lot uh, uh, in order that's that's to good. make their point. And you don't do that. I, I try not to do that either. Um, and I think uh, a, uh, a uh, responsible writer doesn't. I think that, uh, you remember Babylon 5, okay? Straczynski is also an atheist, but look at the, the, the massive role that religion played in the way that entire series was structured,
0: David, do you if if you are going here's something that I'm I'm interested in as a as a reader. When you're writing a science fiction book, you're, you you write about the future, um, and it's called science fiction, of course. So um, if you're going to put a religion in, and you put a religion in that you actually believe in. Um, does that get in the way of, of developing the story? Because you, you have tenets outside of whatever the, the story logic is that, that are part of that religion. Have you done that, or have you avoided it?
4: Um, it it's been a, not an issue in, in a lot of ways. If I have a character in a story who is of a particular religious belief, then he and the society that he came from are going to reflect that belief. Um, and in the Honor Harrington books, for example, you know, the the initial uh, uh, cultural and religious tsunami that Grayson suffers when it comes face-to-face with being pulled into the the interstellar matrix uh, and being allying with thoroughly secular manticore, although the ruling house of manticore is Catholic. (laughs) Um, But that, you, that gave me an opportunity to play with um, uh, a, an open-minded religion coping with things that challenged a lot of its fundamental innermost tenets. One of the things that I tell people is the Church of Grayson actually has a lot in common with Methodism. If you go down to its DNA and start, you'll find the Wesleyan quadrilateral is at the bottom of a lot of their belief structure, but where they differ from uh, most mainstream religions, most mainstream Christian denominations, is their insistence that the book is never closed, that God will always find uh, additional ways to reveal himself if we just pay attention. Um, And I think that the book usually gets closed when people start worrying about defining orthodoxy and heresy. Um, And I'm not sure that that's a healthy thing for for any religion, which is one reason that I probably have gone places uh, in my own religious reading and evolution that would not be um, uh, covered by the... The, the scope of, of scriptural authority. Um, I think most of where I've gone doesn't clash with scriptural authority, and in fact, from the point of view of someone who has been led to an understanding uh, as we're taught can happen when the Holy Spirit intervenes and so forth, um, I have found in scripture confirmation of, of where i have where i've been of course one has to be careful that one doesn't find in scripture exactly what one intended to find there by god when you open the book
0: mm-hmm. well let me turn it to the scientists for a moment um less i i think you're evangelical i'm not sure but um you are a christian how do you react when your friends who are believers and maybe believers of of literal interpretations of of certain things like doubt say evolution evolutionary theory.
3: Well uh well first off being an evangelical doesn't mean you're a, a literalist. It means you have, you know, core beliefs in who Jesus was and why he came and, and his life and his his uh his crucifixion and why all that was done. It doesn't really have in its tenet that you have to be a, a literalist, although but I know quite a few that are.
0: You're just you're more likely to perhaps encounter a literalist and I yeah, yeah, absolutely not. It doesn't.
3: Yeah. Um, well, you know, there, there's two, two-pronged answer to that. Nothing with me is ever simple with one, <laughs> one answer. One <laughs> what, 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 um, what is, a lot of people conflate the idea of the age of the Earth and the universe being equivalent to ascribing to the evolutionary theory and how we intelligent humans happen to get here. And I've found that that's a, a huge stumbling block for a lot of science-minded people who who are told by some that you have to be a literalist and believe the Earth less than 7,000 years old in order to be a Christian, which I I don't see anywhere in the Bible, quite frankly. And that's a shame. You know, it's clear that the universe is ancient. It's over 13 billion years old. The Earth's about 4 billion years. The evidence is overwhelming, right, from physics, astronomy, geology, paleontology, all corroborate that. And, and I don't think that an old earth is seen as a, as a conflict in the Bible, and I use that in my outreach and discussions with fellow scientists and believers when we have these kind of discussions. And going back to what someone said earlier, I think it was David, you know, about what's a billion years to God, you can look in the Bible for that too. I mean, right, Second Peter 3 says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And we know from general relativity it depends on where you are in terms of how much time has passed even within the physical universe we're in. And so I try to get that side of the debate set aside. I don't think that has anything to do necessarily with whether you ascribe to the evolutionary theory of the development of, of humanity. Now, as for evolution and us as a species, you know, I'm a physicist, not a biologist, but I have a lot of biologist friends, and I'm sure Rob will chime in on this. And there appears to be a huge amount of evidence support this notion that life evolved on Earth and has changed and has undergone speciation and things have happened over the course of the, of the billions of years that we've been here, and that's, that's really hard to ignore. In uh, my personal uh, belief is I'm not willing to, to put God in a box and say, you know, he did it by evolutionary process or not. Um, science seems to indicate that that's happened And I just have to come with the understanding that I don't understand how it all comes together and how God did things to to, to make it happen, and I'm not going to rule it out or rule it in. I'm just going to deal with it and move on. So um, I know that kind of dodges a little bit of of the question. Um, uh, Am I perfectly comfortable with that? No. But, you know, I again, I think there's a lot that we don't know about how it was all created, and I guess one of these days, I think I'll find out.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of finding out, and and uh, Rob, let me, you, go ahead. Uh,
3: let me throw one thing in
4: on what Les was saying. Um, my feeling is that I don't really see anything in the Bible, unless you're going to be an absolute literalist, that precludes God. Handling the creation of the human race any way he wanted to, including I'm going to create this primordial ooze that is eventually going to turn into a human being. Um, you know, if if he's if he's the creator god, then he's the one who set all the processes in motion, and ultimately, whether it was I'm going to make a mannequin out of dust and breathe breath into his nostrils, or I'm going to let him evolve out of the natural laws that I have established. He's still the guy who pulled the lever that started the whole process going. Um, and so, for me, it's really uh, a non-issue uh, in in a lot of ways.
0: Mm-hmm. But you're both taking a metaphorical view of of scripture and or the Word of God, and and there are many. Religions and and some denominations within Christianity that insist that you must take it literally.
4: Um, There are there are some. I believe I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but that doesn't mean that I believe that in the that every single word is 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 historically uh, accurate. Um, And it's not really a dancing on the head of a pin distinction. the, if you just look at the language in which Scripture was written, the conventions that were used in writing Aramaic or Greek are very different from the ones that we would use today, which is why translation is such a huge issue in in um, in the transmission of Scripture. And, and there and were... There David, was, I have to chime oh, yeah. in with you. Go ahead, I'm sorry. There were poetic conventions, there were literary conventions, Uh, a lot of it is written because they're writing for the people who are alive at the time that they are writing. It has to be written in terms of the worldview of the audience, and that has to be recognized by anyone who goes back and looks at Scripture today with with, with any kind of an open
3: mind, I think. Yeah, I was no, just going to no. add to that. I, I, I don't look at, you know, I don't look at the Old Testament and Genesis in particular as being a, a science textbook. You know, as I think David said earlier, it's the stories of people trying to understand their God and why they're here and His revelation to them. And as a Christian, I don't see anything what uh, Jesus taught that says, oh, and by the way, in order to, to follow me, you have to accept every word of, Scripture as the literal truth. I, that was not a precondition that I'm aware of. So, well, he's,
1: you know, I, he, I have he's said he, with David
3: there.
4: He said he came to perfect the Law and the Prophets, but that's a different story from necessarily saying, and by the way, every single thing in Genesis has to be taken as literally true. <laughs>
0: That was part one of our roundtable discussion on religion, science, and science fiction with David Weber, Eric Flint, Les Johnson, and Rob Hampson. We'll have part two next time on the podcast, so be sure to give it a listen. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky.
5: Voila, Curry said, holding up a vial from the door of Tom's office. Primer. Come in all the way, please, Tom said. That wasn't quick. It is, to say the least, a tedious procedure, Curry said, closing the door. The longest part of the process is separation through a medium, but I even checked the attenuation level. It's good. I need a detailed SOP on how to produce it, Tom said, walking over and taking the vial. He held it up to the light, then paused. Sorry about the sinister thing, earlier. We need you for more than vaccine. This is an ongoing issue, and I've convinced Dr. Bateman that you're definitely needed on the evac. So, you're secure. Trust you? Curry said with a snort. He pulled out a couple of syringes. Ready to shoot up? Very, Tom said. And I'm, of course, trusting that this works and isn't going to give me the virus, or be some odd poison. See how sinister things can get, Curry said, pulling out a dose from the vial and rolling up his arm. Me first. How's that? I can think at least ten ways this could be a trick, Tom said. Injecting the biologist. Starting with you've already given yourself the vaccine and this is just water. Oh, ye of little faith, Curry said, shaking his head. I take it you're on the executive evac list? Like I want a zombie your size to go nuts on board. How are we getting out, by the way? Depends on the situation at the time, Tom said. Probably hello to the airport, then jets to the remote site which means I need vaccine for the pilots and crew as well. How much did you get? Forty doses, Curry said, of the primer. From five primates? Tom said, grimacing. That's all? That's all, Curry said. Despite the nodules being visible, there's not really a lot of virus there. Less than rabies, for example. Roll up your sleeve. Okay. Tom said, taking off his shirt. There was no way he was getting the sleeves all the way up his shoulders. Then he rolled up his t-shirt sleeve. He held up his hand at the doctor. Just give me a second. What's wrong? Curry said, then laughed. Oh my God, seriously? I'm okay with getting shot, knifed, blown up, and shot again, Tom said, grimacing. Tattoos even, I just don't like needles, okay? Just, he closed his eyes and turned his head to the side Just do it quick Said the Virgin, Curry said Stabbing in the needle and injecting the vaccine There, done you big baby "Uh Uh-huh, Tom said, shuddering I hate that, I really, really do Although I hate even more that you only got 40 doses And that's just primer, Curry said handing him a small black package. More for your bully boys. That's just the first dose for 40 people. And figure on a minimum of 10% wastage. And 10% is low. We're gonna need a lot of primates. We're looking at a minimum of 200 doses for critical personnel alone. Tom said. Damn it. 200? Curry said, his eyes wide. You got that many planes? You forget the support staff at the remote site, Tom said, putting his shirt back on. The hello pilots aren't part of the evac, but they need to be vaccinated. Nor are certain critical personnel on this end. They all know that, but they're holding out for the vaccine, if nothing else. After the primaries, the next goes to pilots to take vaccine to the remote site. There's a schedule, but a minimum of 200 doses. 220 if we're talking 10% wastage. I'm gonna need an assistant, Curry said, shaking his head. That's more work than you realize. I'll put up an ad, shall I, Tom said. Minion wanted, must have a complete lack of squeamishness and a sociopathic personality. Actually, if I thought they'd keep their mouths shut, I know a couple of people in the club industry like that. No, wouldn't work. You? Not anyone I'd trust, Curry said, shrugging. I mean... I'm trying to avoid thinking about what we're doing. Saving lives, Tom said. Come to think of it, what do you need in the way of an assistant? Just someone with a strong stomach and good intelligence, Curry said. How old, Tom asked. I mean, would an intelligent and... He paused and thought. Would an intelligent and diligent teenager work? I know where I could get one of those that I'd trust. A teenager? Curry said, frowning. I'm not. I'm thinking of my niece, Tom said. She and her family are down lurking in the Hudson on a sailboat at the moment. Thinking of jumping ship, Curry asked, then frowned. Or jumping on a ship? There's nothing wrong with a backup plan, Tom said, chuckling. I presume you have one. If I didn't, they shouldn't have hired me. She's a straight-A student, and she's interested in science, and she's closed-mouthed. This is a pretty big secret, Curry pointed out. Which is going to get out, at least as rumor, before long, Tom said. I'll get them in here and let you interview her. I'll cover the specific details, that's on me. Are you going to clear it with Bateman? Curry asked. He does not need to know the details of the vaccine acquisition, Tom said. That way, if it blows up in our face, he can sacrifice us both to the so-called justice system with a clear mind. I can just feel the love, Curry said. You realize we're putting your niece squarely in the crosshairs. She can lie and say she was just doing lab work and had no clue what she was doing. Tom said, shrugging. We cannot, but I'll need to get her parents' approval, which means a trip to the river. He picked up the vial and tossed it up and down. I'm going to need the rest of this. Any specific requirements? Keep it on ice, Curry said. Refrigerated, anyway. Get the rest to Dr. Simmons, Tom said, walking to the door. He has his schedule. Chapter Eight Dad, we've got inbound, Sophia said ducking into the saloon. harbor cops Steve said, setting his iPad down. He had to admit he was as bored as the girls just sitting in the harbor, but he also wasn't leaving until Tom called it. Small, fast boat, Sophia said. Open, center console fishing boat, I think. I only see one bloke. Rig up, Steve said, stepping up to the cockpit. He picked up a pair of binoculars and regarded the approaching boat. It was probably just someone passing through the area, but people were using sailboats to evacuate. It was just as possible that someone wanted this boat. He considered the driver as it approached. Big guy. Stand down. It's Tom. You could have called, Uncle Tom, Faith said. She was still in her hastily donned body armor. We nearly blew you away. She took the tossed coil of the line and secured it to the stanchion. Why am I not surprised? Tom said, grinning. Sort of an op situation. First of all, I come bearing gifts. I hope they don't include the flu, Steve said, frowning. We've been very careful about protocols and I'd hate to catch it from my brother. I'm clean, Tom said. Picking up a large black pelican case and hoisting it over onto the deck of the sailboat. And so is this, it's all been decontaminated, and part of the gifts is vaccine. Hallelujah, Stacy said, grinning. The news said that it wasn't going to be ready for months. And we need to talk about that, Tom said, dropping another case over the side. What's all this stuff? Faith asked. More weapons, Tom said. Ammunition, legal releases for holding it, first aid materials. More masks and filters, and, he said, lifting a small cooler over the side, the first delivery of vaccine. And now, he said, climbing over the rail, Steve, Stacy, we need to talk alone. Girls, front cabin, Steve said. Aw, Dad, Faith said. Seriously, Tom said, pointing. It won't be long, Sophia, no eavesdropping. I won't, Sophia said. Grabbing Faith's arm. Come on. We'll find out eventually. I'd accept a drink if it was offered, Tom said. What, you want to raid my bar? Steve said, waving him into the saloon. We'd better talk out here, though, Tom said, following him in. Stacy, I haven't really said hello. Vaccine, medicine, and ammo is the best hello you could have sent, Stacy said, hugging him. How are you doing? I've been better, Tom said taking the offered whiskey. I probably should have brought you some of this as well. We're okay on it, Steve said, waving out of the saloon. If we start using it to pass the time, we're done for. How's it been? Tom asked as they sat down in the cockpit. Steve tactfully closed the door. Boring, really, Stacy said. She'd poured herself a glass of wine. We've had harbor cups tell us we had to move twice. Not much pull there. Tom said, but the most they can do is fine you, and I'm pretty sure they're too busy to do that. He paused and took another sip. This is good, smooth. Bushmills honey, Steve said. Why are you stalling? Because I don't know where to start, Tom said. What do you know about vaccines? Depends on the vaccine, Steve answered. There are a bunch of different ones and various ways they're produced. Why? He asked suspiciously. You know the thing about who you'd call to help you move bodies? Tom asked. Yes, Stacy said cautiously. Do you need us to help you move one? Who did you have to kill to get the vaccine? Several people, Tom said, taking another sip. He'd been avoiding drinking since the vaccine mission, and I'll have to kill several more. You're serious, Steve said. Tom. Tom. It's more complicated than you think, Tom said. And not. The easiest and fastest way to make a vaccine is through using killed virus. The only source of the virus, the only place it grows, is on spinal tissue. And the only species it infects is primates. And the only readily available primates are... Humans, Stacy said, turning slightly green. Oh God, Tom. Oh good God. The excuse is that Unlike rabies, there seems to be no way to reverse the damage, Tom said, taking another sip. Once a zombie, always a zombie. And vaccine will save people like, oh, you and me and the girls. But they are also unquestionably human. So it is just as unquestionably murder. I have people to help me with the heavy lifting. sedated zombies are very heavy but the biologist who is producing the vaccine does not have help. So I thought to where I could find someone that was trustworthy enough to not talk about what they were doing. How much do you need? Stacy asked. I mean, I only got about 40 doses from my first run, Tom said. And after I said I needed 200 doses, 400 actually, since there's a primer and a booster, I got the estimate up by higher. So the answer is a lot. The general idea is to keep producing until we hit the eject bar, or, rather, shortly before. I can, Steve said, then looked around. Would you like me to think ahead for you, Tom said. The boat needs to be secured. Although the girls and Stacy are trained by you, they're not you or me. I could detail someone to secure the boat, but, given the circumstance, I'm not sure who I'd trust to hold a boat in the harbour, so you need to stay. And Stacy is your engineer, not to mention just about the kindest person in the entire family. I don't see her as an assistant to our resident mad doctor. Is he mad? Stacy asked. No more than Steve or I, Tom said, shrugging. Bit of an arse, but so are Steve and I, he added with a grin. You're saying one of the girls, Steve said, to assist you in murder. Assuming this ever comes out, Tom said, and assuming people don't just ignore it, and assuming that Sophia's role in it ever comes out, the most she could be charged with is accessory after the fact. The only persons who are going to know she knows what she is doing are more culpable by far, and you can be assured I'll be moving heaven and earth to make sure she's not locked up when the fall comes, to the point of having the plans ready for the prison break. Which will be difficult for you to effect if you're in prison as well, Steve pointed out. Which is why you're going to have them, Tom said, grinning. The other reason for you to be out here, brother of mine? Seriously, I need Sophia. You have my assurance as her uncle that she'll be secure while she's on the island. Oh, and she'll get paid. In gold. Why would people ignore it? Stacy asked, temporizing. Because I know I'm not the only one with this bright idea, Tom said. I don't have any hard data on that, but I guarantee that NYPD is doing the same thing. The cops aren't going to go with that vaccine. Nor is NYFD. And all the same rationales hold. One, it gets dangerous zombies off the street without having to put them in permanent isolation. Which is consuming so many resources, it's getting ineffective. Two, it saves people. Yes, it requires that some die, that others live, but they're already effectively no longer human. At least that's what I tell myself in the middle of the night. Oh, and for another reason, to release Sophia. It gets her off the boat. That's less resource use, and I know she and Faith have been driving you nuts. I'd rather you took Faith, Steve said, shaking his head. If I hear the word bored out of her mouth one more time, I'm gonna throw her over the side. Which one of them would you rather have producing your vaccine? Tom asked. Sophia, Stacy and Steve said simultaneously, then chuckled. Send them both, Tom said. I can find something to occupy that little hellion that doesn't involve being on a BERT. BERT? Stacy asked. Biological Emergency Response Team, Tom said. And I'll ensure they both get the same protection as any of our execs. They'll be safe. They can quarter with me. I've got the room. You'll regret that, Steve said, looking at Stacy. We'll have to talk to them about it, Stacy said. It's a horrible thing to ask, Tom said. But it's necessary. Let me go get them, Steve said. That was another segment
0: in our complete audiobook serialization of *Under a Graveyard Sky* by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, who I just saw at Worldcon. And may I say she is as lovely, graceful, and creative as ever. And a chorus of hallelujah and pass the potatoes and Wesleyan isosceles triangles and Episcopalian rum cake crumpets for David Weber, Eric Flint, Les Johnson, and Robert Hampson all of whose work everyone should follow religiously. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.